Thank you very much for coming and I'd like to thank the Royal Irish Academy for the invitation to give this talk as part of this very important uh, lunchtime series. I think it's wonderful to see um, a series like this where we can come in and take a little break from the busyness of life and to come in and to savour uh, some of the wonderful work that's going on in the Royal Irish Academy. Uh, without, uh, I'm conscious of time as well, and it is lunchtime, so perhaps some of you uh, are trying to get back to work and things as well. So we'll start. Um, this title refers to an article written in 1909, uh, which reflects the orthographical changes of the period, which dictated much debate in language usage in the public sphere of the media. Now, I won't be talking much about the orthographical uh, side of this today. I've, I've detailed this in a more general context. The talk will present an overview of the themes, current content and Irish language journals, uh, examining the impact of developments in Irish language print media on the intellectual life of this period, and uh, where revivalist ideology and the language movement helped to make new developments a reality. New writing practices and processes which evolved as a re result of new writing styles and print forums were central to the creation of an Irish reading public and a modern literature. And this intellectual mindset was premised on the understanding that it was imperative to preserve the antiquities of the past while cultivating a literary and oral language of the present. So to introduce this today, Irish Language and Print Forum, just before the period, this article in Irish Lornagelige, uh, from which this article comes, is very indicative of the type of linguistic analysis which formed the linguistic debate. Therefore, this, is, uh, th this relates to the 17th century historian Geoffrey Keating and how he would have wanted, really, uh, the debate was whether we should go back to that type of language or whether we should look at the um, language of the people. Um, this is very important because Irish Lorna Gaelica, while it finished in 1909, interestingly enough, just before the period in question today, it had a huge impact on the mindset of the era. So um, looking at it, we can look at, uh, we, we can see that this was, um, what he says, it's it Jacarara, it, it's, it's hard to say, and I'm, I'm presuming, I'm, I'm sure that um, everybody here has Irish, but just in case, I'll just take it and I'll just translate it. Uh, those who have Irish can read it from the screen, those who, who feel more comfortable with the translation, I'll translate. Um, it's hard to say what is Irish today, and we look at the spelling, which is the old spelling, G-I-E-D-H-I-L-G, and what isn't. Um, because it's a long time since we had that, learn, that learning from our ancestors. That's um, a very general translation. And actually in this then, he, he blames the, um, the foreign learning, as he calls, is uh, after confusing all of us, he says. And uh, they don't know what they know or what they don't know. And you can see from what Shahrun Kachin wrote one time and put it in the comp in in, comp in comparison with what is now in print. So I didn't go into the key chain because I felt it might be a bit complicated for today, but I will look at this other. Cathas fear gaelic on what is a true Irishman and the old spelling there, but this is the interesting part. It's Jukar Ara. Now that is the new spelling, and those of you who know Irish, that is basically very phonetical, and it is looking on the complete um, ISS, Jukker, J-U-C-K-E-R, that's the anglicised version of D-E-A-C-I-R, Marajar, who Conal Karnach, as Conal Karnach would say. Um, is this a, a, a true gale before me? And if not, um, you know, is a, a, a true, um, a lat, is a true Latin or um, true, um, perhaps the, the most, what they've said, true episodes of foreign uh, examples. And uh, so then they say that, of course, that Keichin had, um, didn't have English very, uh, didn't have very good English, and that this was, that this confused him a lot too when he was writing. And they go through a few more examples there, and I leave them in front of you uh, just uh, for the moment while I'm reading the rest of the paper. Um, Irish language print culture, because they are samples of, and the reason I've used this is because the language, and I'm, it's very much in the context of print culture, print culture at that time represented a mindset where the mind became fixed as well as what was actually being said. And if we look at the, the print culture examples, even that example, and I deliberately took that article because I feel it just shows completely the confusion, the confusion at the time with regard to what we were going to print, how we were going to print it, and what was going to emerge in the next 10 years as it happens, 1910 to 1920 for this talk. 
Irish language print culture, however, was an integral element of intellectual life in Ireland during the period 1910 to 20. This was mostly the result of the revival movement, which gathered momentum. And the, this article, which was published just before 1910, was indicative of the challenges facing the language revival movement at the time. But the movement had already made its mark on intellectual life in Ireland, with an increase, firstly, in the use of the press for medium as a medium for public discourse, Secondly, with an increase of developments in the understanding of modern literature. And thirdly, an increase in organization within societal structures, which would favor the extension of the use of the Irish language with a view to the creation of a bilingual community, which preserved the antiquities of the language while fostering a living tongue. The value placed on this manuscript material as part of an intellectual heritage, which would form a historic basis for a new school of intellectual thinking, was evidenced primarily in 1916, as it happens, as is referenced uh, in Professor Liam O'Brien's memoirs. Uh, this is part of the 1916 uh, uh, rising at the time, and the rebels advance on the Royal Irish Academy, and Liam O'Brien didn't recognise that he was in the Royal Irish Academy because he would normally have come up to it, and in this instance, he had come down to it through the tunnelling. And they find some of the jewels of ancient Ireland before them. This piece is a clear reflection of the esteem in which these works were held and which actually led as a preface for what would follow in the preservation of this work, despite the turmoil in which the incident took place. Print culture and media forums would go on to play a significant role in this concept of intellectual life, but clearly this emanated from the writing content and the value placed on the written word, which was part of a tradition of many centuries. And just at the end here, we see this is uh, Liam O'Brien's memoirs, and one of the things he's, he's talking here um, to Pierce Baisley, and at the end he's just saying, you know, I, I'm really perturbed about what is going to come of what we are doing here, and the whole moral rectitude of what they were doing. That's one instance that it wasn't a, an off-the-cuff um, arrangement or something that just uh, arose from a group of rebels. These were clearly thinking intellectuals. The other uh, part, and this pertains completely to the Royal Irish Academy, and I'll translate again, um, and this is directly from it. Um, another place that I knew, that I knew very well, um, was a room uh, on the first floor. The heavy door was, uh, was locked, uh, one of the men looked in through the keyhole and he he talked to Bob. Bob, he said, there are huge, um, great old books in here, um, more than I've ever seen before. Wouldn't they be great for a barricade? Um, the best thing in the world to stop a bullet um, is uh, heavy, thick books. Break in, boys. Wait, I said. Uh, let, me, let me look. Um, I saw the books. I didn't just see the books, but I recognized them. This is what they were. Uh, Lorelein, the Book of Leinster, the Book of the Duncow, the Book of Ballymote, um, and Rawlinson, the, the great books of the old Irish manuscripts uh, that had been preserved for a long time and put out by the Royal Irish Academy. This was um, the advanced school of learning in Dublin. Uh, this was the, the school where my, I got to know my old master, Kuno Meyer, the, where I heard lectures from Kuno, from Bergen, from Marstrander, and the first, um, the first month of the, the war from Pedersen from, from Copenhagen. He mentions de Valera, he mentions all these people, and then he goes on and he says, um, he I, I turned to the men, do you know men? I said, what... Um, what are those books that you see in there? Oh, we don't know. They are the old books of Ireland. Now, 4,000 years, he says, perhaps a bit of exaggeration. Do you think it is because of those books that we are fighting here in 1916? And the most interesting part is after that, we didn't open the door. Uh, we all decided that we wouldn't um, lay a finger on those books. And then when the soldiers came, uh, from the English soldiers came, they saw that we weren't in there and they didn't bother opening the door. The advanced school of Irish learning did not lose anything because of the uh, 1916, uh, because in 1916 in Easter week, because of these. So this is really indicative, I think, of the esteem in which this learning was held. 
And it's interesting because the Advanced School of Learning also was the, um, the founder of the journal Eru in 1904, which was taken over then by the Royal Irish Academy in 1926. So th this manuscript tradition and the whole print culture and what was being written was being handed on and it was being uh, nurtured through this period in a very real way and even with a major rising and what was going on through that turbulent time in 1910 to 1920 where we saw a very great variance in a political thought and in the mindset of the people if you like that the intellectual life in Ireland was sacred and it was very much preserved and I think it's important to acknowledge that indeed an examination of media and writing practices and processes it is possible that the Onyachtin manuscripts were the first seeds of Irish language journalism. This grew into a forum which was utilised to the full in the first quarter of the 20th century in particular. We can see, therefore, that revivalists faced a momentous challenge to achieve the aims of a bilingual Ireland, reinstating the spoken language and adapting it to urban structures of the worlds of, quote, the worlds of commerce, politics, official religion and the professions and printed word from which it had been banished as a result of complex socio-economic and political circumstances, as Mary Daly uh, told us in 1990. So looking at one of those organizations, the Society of the Preservation of, uh, for Irish Language, and uh, it was from these kind of organizations, this wasn't just about um, a, 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 an elitist culture, it was about organizations that were set up to reach out and create not only a network, but a community of learning, which would be fostered and would eventually um, create that sense of an intellectual life. But core to that intellectual life was the print culture and the journals which accompanied them. And as we saw in the Society of the Preservation of Irish Language, which emanated then, which from which uh, the Gaelic Union emanated, we then had Irish Lorna Gaelica, the Gaelic Journal, as one of the first. So while organizations such as this paved the way for the intellectual cultiva cultivation, organizations such as, and we see here actually, this is, this is interesting and you probably can't see it on the, the slide, but I just put it in anyway because it's a bit of a comparison between, we have the report there in Angale on, on your right hand side, it's actually the, the, the journal Angale in Brooklyn and in it there is um, a report of the Society for the Preservation of Irish Language in Brooklyn in 1887. So these, these are very important sources for us now to show that transatlantic, the, intellect, the intellectual life went beyond the shores of Ireland and it was very much um, a life that was shared uh, among uh, those who tried to understand more about identity and culture at the time. And on the other hand we have in, in Clive Sullish in 1908 and I, I put it in just um, to see the, the difference in the, the way they had advanced and we have the advertisement there for the cigarettes with slancha uh, written on them which would definitely not reach the print culture for today. Um, going on to that then there were three main organizations I suppose that we look on which uh, formed the basis for much of that intellectual life, the Gaelic League and we look here, I put this in in particular because it's a bilingual um, uh, membership uh, invitation and advertisement so uh, that, that's important to remember that. And the, the, the aims of the Gaelic League and the Gaelic League that we have today, the preservation of uh, the national language of Ireland and the extension of its use as a spoken tongue, and the study and publication of existing Gaelic literature and the cultivation of a modern literature in Irish. That was back um, in 1893 when it was founded, but that became such a major element of the work of the Gaelic League, and that is how they... Um, cultivated this intellectual life. And finally then the, the uh, uh, Michael Cusack and the Celtic Times, he also used his Celtic Times newspaper for uh, the, the, the promotion of his ideas. So very much there was the idea of the mind, the body and the soul. And it was all, and, and the arts were all interact, uh, uh, it was an interactive process between all of these that one perhaps could not uh, survive without the other. And finally then we have of course uh, the Abbey Theatre or the Irish Literary Theatre when it was formed. Uh, so these were very, very much uh, to the fore. These were the, the, the cornerstones, if you like, of intellectual life in Ireland at the time. The use of the public sphere of the media was important in creating a forum for public discourse in Irish, while many campaigns within the movement brought issues to light which helped to reinstate the language to some degree. 
The revival period coincided with a watershed in Irish language journalism, indeed in Irish journalism, merging the concept of a new journalism, which was actually a concept of a type of journalism where people started to, um, and Stead was one of the most uh, to the fore in this, who actually went down then in the Titanic in 1912, but who was one of the most to the fore in promoting this more liberal journalism where it was more um, discussing what could be done rather than just commentary. Uh, and periodical culture. Professional journalism was now recognized as part of society and public discourse and the print forum was part of life. Periodicals and newspapers took on a new role and with these developments came a new intellectual mindset. The expanding provincial press spread the news of agrarian meetings and protests and played a central role in the development of political consciousness among the farming and labouring classes also. So this was not merely an urban phenomenon. Um, McCarthy, actually in 1912, a reporter at the time, sums this kind of development up as print had become for the first time an actuality for the Catholic peasants and part of their everyday life speaking to them in a thrilling, palpitating language, intelligible, and there lay the marvel, yet different from anything previously known, for it enabled them to hear their friends at a distance talking to them in accents of power about the wondrous doings of all the events and of the Land League in particular. And we may not have had um, those uh, in the context of Irish language. Yes, we had, the, uh, we had the accents, but we also had our dialects, and that was what emerged. So looking at the revival implementation as part of what formed this era and the intellectual life, the Gaelic League had an added role on this period in that it provided sanctuary to a very disillusioned generation of young people while also providing a mecca in which young people could engage in public discourse after Parnell's death, which was of course just two years prior to that, the foundation of the Gaelic League. As one of the many leaguers who met her husband, Eamon Kant, um, in, in the Gaelic League, Anya Kant describes this as a mecca. It was a mecca for everybody. People learned that they had a country with a language. They learned the music, the dancing, the games, and they were encouraged to use Irish manufactured goods without the burden of a political agenda. What followed was a very progressive period in the production of Irish language print material and in the campaigns to ensure usage and visibility. The revivalist approach attempted basically to preserve and revitalize the impoverished spoken language of the West, to reinstate the language in an urban context, and to preserve the antiquaries of the language, especially the manuscripts. In the context of the communications revolution, which was at the start of the 20th century, the fostering of the practice of using Irish language in a national journalistic context was laying a foundation by creating a discourse on issues which quite possibly would never otherwise have reached the public domain of English language discourse. It was very important at that time that Irish language engaged with the print forums. As print and journalistic sources were often perceived as tools for normalizing language within the public sphere of the media, they provide a blueprint for the vision of this period. Secondly, their usefulness expands due to the dearth of reliable statistical evidence and a brief overview of the methods used and the achievements of the language movement in the 20th century helps in reviewing language register usage and competency. The focus on the visibility of the language using literary texts, campaigns, educational policies, and political influences was instrumental in the acceptance of Irish as a second language and the establishment of the permanent public sphere. Another important aspect of this was the recognition of the need for textual learning while combining this with the, quote, willingness to learn from abroad, as Owen O'Grownie told us, and to innovate as reinforced by O'Grownie's role. So here we have Hyde when he was coming back in, uh, from um, Canada in Canada in, in, in uh, 1891. And we see, I, I put this up deliberately because really it was that that actually started this whole intellectual process in the context of Irish language. And he, he could see the worth of starting this in um, in the States in his talk, and one of the, this was in the uh, Irish University Review in 1886, but he distinctly uh, mentions the New York element and how they are accepting the need for revival, perhaps more than Ireland. 
It is not surprising, therefore, that the messages from Hyde's initial speeches in New York gained significant following crossing geographical borders. Almost 100 years on from the foundation of the first Irish language periodical, Bullock and Color, part of Hyde's speech to the New York Common Gaelica was printed in the Irish-American newspapers at the end of June. It reached the newspapers in Ireland, which shows the network. Uh, where it influenced Owen McNeil and Owen O'Growney, and Hyde primarily claimed that the language was in a bad way, but it was not dead, stating that a bilingual Ireland would be better than a monolingual one for numerous reasons. He concluded by stating that if the Irish people wanted to stand together as one nation, that the link for this was to be found in the ancient language of Ireland, Irish. This had to become a print language. This prompted McNeil then to write an article entitled, and again, everything is through the print culture, why and how the Irish language is to be preserved in the Irish ecclesiastical record, which is basically a treatise on his vision for the progression of the language movement with some practical recommendations, which they adhere to right through the period that we're talking about. Uh, O'Growney then asked McNeil to write a more defined article on ways in which Irish language could be preserved and revived, and an English and Irish version entitled Cochar Magas Glace Ebrach on Glusach and the Gaelicid the Horary and Yeren, a plea and a plan for the extension of the movement to preserve and spread the Gaelic language in Ireland, was published in the Gaelic Journal in March 1893. The 13-point article stated that no language has ever been kept alive by mere book teaching. The language cannot live at all that does not live in the homes of the people. Whatever is worth doing is worth doing speedily, and speedily they did. McNeil's articles and O'Growney's articles, the Irish language, highlighted the need to combine the scholarly approach with the language of the home, and that was the premise. A coherent message was emerging to formulate a policy of action. Acting on the correspondence that the article generated from the literary elite of Ireland, the Gaelic League was then founded. Uh, furthermore, following McNeil's earlier criticism in an article in the Ecclesiastical Record of the failure of the Irish at home to decently support a quarterly journal devoted to the culture of Irish, he was now provided with a forum to address this issue. So this was clearly a part of the uh, revival that they needed to formulate all the time. Um, McNeil credited the Clive Solish, the first Irish language newspaper, with testing the reality uh, of the movement. And this was written in the, in, the Gaelic, in the Gaelic League Journal. I leave you to read some of these yourselves while I'm, while I'm talking about it, because I don't want to take too much time on it. Um, but they, they were testing the reality of the movement. And up until that, a lot of the Irish language journals had been about protesting against the authorities. But now, at the watershed of the 20th century, it was clear that we had moved into a different era where it was now part of the society in which we lived and it was to become a community language. It was now time to test the public, not the authorities. The language movement was gaining momentum, but if Irish were to be adopt adapted to urban structures of the worlds of commerce, politics, official religion, the professions and printed word, the economic value of the Irish language would also be a key element. In his editorials and in Clive Sullish, McNeil often wrote about his belief in the role that the Gaelic League had to play not only in cultural and language revival, but in economic survival. Referring to Greece, Finland, Bohemia, Hungary, and East Prussia, he sometimes used examples of material prosperity in other countries where language revival had taken place. So we can see how this all fits into the type of society that was emerging in those early years of the 20th century, in the first 25 years. This highlights the European focus viewing the Irish language in comparison with other world languages as opposed to a marginalised language on the western seaboard of Europe, which is in keeping with the initial revival ide ideology on an international scale while acknowledging the new communication works, uh, networks demonstrating a new intellectual modern mindset. The focus in the first quarter of the 20th century would be on the spoken language of the people, and this would serve as the basis for all related revival activities over the next 40 years or so, and the print culture would be the instrument through which this would be communicated. This approach, which embraced the use of the living language for intellectual debate as the new reality, was in stark contrast from the 19th century Irish language periodicals, which, which fostered a scholarly and preservation uh, approach as opposed to fostering language usage. And this was the difference, and particularly the era we're talking about, it became a living language in print. This is how McNeil describes the founding of the Gaelic League in um, November 1893, and I leave you to read it, but I will just read the last little piece 
Um, it was understood that an urban intellectual environment would be the cornerstone for this in order to seize the psychological movement. And at the end, we say uh, he, he's enticing people to do uh, to use the opportunity now to create an urban Irish-speaking public and to link this with the West. We are not fearful of the response. It is to bring about this that the Gaelic League proposes to create an opportunity. In the noted Bismarckian phrase, it is abundantly clear that the founders of the Gaelic League have seized the, psycholo the psychological move, uh, moment. So this was very important. It was, it was this mindset that formed much of what happened after that, which correlates also with Anya Kant's description, which I referred to earlier. So looking at the implementation of the intellectual freedom, their methods and their campaigns, the space had been provided. They had formed this space within the public sphere of the media that was going to be uh, a place for intellectual debate, a place for public discourse, a place for generally promoting their aims and for trying to create the intellectual mindset that would have an impact on the formation of the era. And, but then they needed to implement their policies in education, literature, language, social practices, economics, and most of this would be deba debated in these print forums. Nolly Gogaira, a former president of the Gaelic League, stated while explaining the role of the Gaelic League in the 1916 Rising said, and this is a translation, although it is true that the League had no direct link with the Rising itself, no more than Sinn Féin, it is obvious that it was the League's vision that inspired many of the followers of the revolution. Not only did they describe, and this is important, I think, and outline the kind of Ireland that should be formed, in the context of scholarship and culture, they trained the new young generation of the 20th century on how to set it up. That is why it's very important that we look at this, these print forums to see what was being said. What, and without looking at this, it's very, it's very difficult to assess a revival in the context of the number of speakers. In fact, it's quite... Um, reductive, I think, and, and if, we, if we look on it in that context alone, uh, even if the greatest empire in the world was still in control. I mean, when we think of the might, perhaps, of the empire, of what they were uh, taking on in a cultural context, not in a revolutionary context. These were a specific generation, perhaps, of idealists and intellectuals, and the period 1910 to 20 played a significant role in all of those associated with the Gaelic League, as Pierce called them, the Gaelic League generation. Um, we only need to look at how many were out on the streets um, in the volunteers. Now, I've given many talks, and this is another talk completely, but just to bear that in mind that certainly the Gaelic League was not responsible in any way for the, the Gaelic League, uh, for, for the, the, the rising, but the participation perhaps of a lot of its members um, were in the format of that formation of a mindset and perhaps a new Ireland. This is again evident in the organ of the Gaelic League after the rising when the divide is made clear between rebellion and revival. Clearly, uh, language revival uh, was viewed as an essential element of Irish life, but not at the expense of political or religious engagement or interaction. This intellectual life was founded on strong principles of identity and nationality. Um, and they, this was discussed in May 1916, and this is the one in um, August 1916. And it, it, I think at this stage, because after immediately after 1916, a lot of newspapers really weren't going to commit to how they felt about what had happened or what was going on. And this was obviously the case also in Irish language print media. But it is not until in August that we find a definite reference to how the rising affected the Gaelic League and what what stand the Gaelic League are taken, and I think it's, it's, it's a letter that was written to the, to, the, to the paper at the time, but it was written from uh, Gaelic League members. The pleas of the leader writers are that the League has become virtually a political organisation. The revival of the native language in Ireland is, in the first place, a national question. Ireland is a small nation which has had a language of her own as long as she has had a history, and if a member of the Gaelic League suffers death for his religious or political principles, we mourn his loss and cannot think less of his work for the revival of the Irish language because he has proved himself a man of courage in other spheres of action. In other spheres of actions, there's a definite divide there at this point. The Gaelic League has always kept an open door for all Irish-born men and women who want to help the language revival and has never imposed any religious or political test. As a matter of fact, unionists have been... Sorry. Sorry. Um, 
Yes, and are amongst our most zealous workers. The Gaelic League might, if it chooses at any time, convert itself into an organisation of a religious or political character. And it has not done so, because its members believe that there is no religious body or political party in Ireland that should not feel it a duty to furnish its quota of the work of the revival of the national language. So this was a very clear message as to how uh, the movement, uh, the Irish language movement and the revival movement was impacting on Irish society at the time, as opposed to being connected to any political uh, agenda. Much of this thinking healed from generations of European philosophers who preceded them, linking language to identity. And it's no coincidence, for example, that Charles Darwin died in 1882, and uh, the European intellectuals who had a major influence in this generation, uh, Ficht, with his treatise uh, Reden an die Deutsche Nation, and Wilhelm von Humboldt, who said, language is the external manifestation, as it were, of the spirit of a nation. Its language is its spirit, and its spirit is its language. One can hardly think of them as sufficiently identical. So the whole mindset behind this was that we think in a language, therefore it actually dictates much of how we act. So if we're thinking in a language that is not native to us, perhaps we are promoting uh, cultural values that are not native to us. This was the the the... the and of course, this is where um, Hyde comes in as well. As one of the more prominent intellectuals, Hyde is an excellent example of the era as a first president of the Gaelic League until 1915, the first chair of modern Irish in the NUI from 1909 to 1932, and finally, the first president of Ireland from 1938 to 45. He acknowledged this intellectual freedom as being rooted in European ideals also. And he demonstrated this very clearly in 1899 when he was putting forward the case for um, uh, for the, the uh, Irish to become part to become a subject in um, Irish education, the Commission Robertson. The Trinity case, case rests on Dr. Atkinson. Two cases are made. One is that literature is lacking in idealism and imagination and is indecent. The second is that Irish is a formless, fluid, indefinite state, is in fact a dismal swamp. A little reflection will show how deadly is this onslaught. It is the worst attack ever made on the whole Irish race on all Irish thought, on the genius of the people. So he's really linking it, and this is very clear also in the earlier journals in Bollock and Thuller. It stamps the race as gross and lacking in creative and imaginative power. It deprives us of our inheritance, our past. It says, in effect, the thoughts and deeds of the Irish people for over a thousand years are not worth the reading. How they sang or lived or loved, warred or worked has no interest. They were a coarse material tribe or tribes whose written workers, whose written records are valueless. So we see how far that came. That was 1899. So we see Liam O'Brien coming into the Royal Irish Academy and what he encountered, how this mindset had changed and how they had managed to impact on a full generation at that time, which is very important. Their writings are low, near the sod, and lacking in idealism and imagination. Today, they have not an imagination at all. Now, a little of the debt which the continent owes to this calumniated Ireland has been paid. The most eminent foreign scholars have rallied to the defense of our literature and language. All the Irish and foreign authorities are against Dr. Atkinson in maintaining the educational value of the language and the worth of its literature, and so forth. But it very much clearly sees the links that they were creating with Europe and how they recognize that need to think of this in a much broader context. Some of this is to be found also in Pierce's essay, The Intellectual Future of the Gale, in which he says, the Gale is in the fullest sense of the word an idealist. He is, in fact, the idealist among the, among the nations. He recognized the value of literature at a national level and cultural identity, and he compares it with, compares Irish with the languages of Homer and Virgil for youthful vigor and literary capabilities, with the languages of Dante, Shakespeare, and Goethe, and this was not a narrow concept, but a progressive historic perspective on language and its possibilities. He used this approach again for debate in the National University in 1908, which was one of his most prolific debates and one of the best roles, perhaps, in the context of intellectual life that he, that he played. Um, and what he said in Clive Sullish as part of that debate uh, in trying to get Irish as an essential, uh, uh, as an essential subject, Intellectual freedom must precede political or national freedom. The first case of every race struggling to maintain their national existence is to educate their people on national lines and through the medium of their own tongue. So clearly this was part of this. Before this, I think 1912, then we see a huge change in the writings of Pierce, where there is a much more defined attitude towards politics and perhaps um, a more rebellious streak coming through. In the context of the aims of a modern literature, again, the European model 
was used and they did not shy away from problems of modern society. In the essays on literature by Pierce and Padraig O'Connor during this time, they mentioned Knut Hampson, Nobel uh, Literature Award, um, alongside many Russian writers, Dostoevsky, and alongside Gorky and Maupassant, to examine the role of the human being in life. To do this, they created the Earthus, again, a space to be created as the forum for intellectual um, and literary performance. And again, this was viewed in an intellectual context. And they, here we see an Irish Lorna Gaelica just after this. But again, they're, they're looking at it in the context. The, the Americans were bowled over by it. You know, this was um, the very idea of the Irish people having a literary competition in their own language in Dublin was so extraordinary that they eagerly took notice of it. So this, this is important, and this would never have happened were it not for the cross-transatlantic uh, and international prints, uh, print culture. So, and it, it actually, uh, as um, has been debated before, it made them feel that they were part of something that was perhaps bigger than themselves. These were not viewed as social get-togethers, but as platforms to cultivate a literary culture and a new intellectual community, which was to tie in with the intellectual freedom that was um, being promoted in an international context. And here we see again the Earthus and how they compare it. Um, you know, the, the, the Pythian, the Olympic, the Nimi, and the Isminian, the Isminian Games were to the Greeks, the assemblies of Tara, Amania, Carmen, and Talchin were to the men of Ireland. The ancient assemblies are revived in the earth. So we see this train all the time of linking to the past while creating the future. And the very years we're talking about were pivotal in this. In order to complete this, however, they needed to engage with many other campaigns, place names, street names, names on carts, addresses on letters and banks. The power of the print medium was recognized long before this in the debate in the Royal Irish Academy again, which was reported in the University Review in 1886, but it wasn't enough to have it just in the print forum. They needed it all around, and that's where the street names and whatever came in as well. But it is interesting to note uh, T.W. Rolleston's argument in the Irish University Review in 1886 and this is just before the foundation of a professional journalism, um, a, a professional association of journalists. Um, what he says is, but we should need to see more definiteness or more common sense in the aims of Uncreaving Avian and his and his friends Hyde. Do they wish to make the do they wish to make Irish the language of our conversation and our newspapers? Impossible and wholly undesirable. Do they wish to make us a bilingual people in the sense that everybody should know two languages? But peasantry and artisans cannot be expected to know two languages except at the expense of both. What is there left to, ex to accept to treat Irish as a classic and leave it to the universities? So this was, you know, this was very important that these arguments were being put forward at the time. Irish would now be recognized as part of the written and print culture of the public sphere and not just as the spoken peasant language, which would in turn strengthen it as a living discursive language. So new directions after 1912, in the context of what was reported during this period, 1916 did take on a new role and was a pivotal point in both the lead up to it and in its aftermath. The Irish language press documented and reported all events. The signing of the Ulster Solemn League and Covenant by around half a million Ulster Protestants in 1912 indicated that there was strong resistance to the Third Home Rule Bill. And while this was debated, it's not widely reported that actually there was um, an, uh, a meeting which was uh, printed, the, the outcome of which was printed in Enclave Sullish to try and bring reason to what was happening. And it was under the auspices of the Gaelic League with Douglas Hyde. And he said in his speech that he believed that it was not in the nature of Irish people to mistreat their fellow men. And he said that in the Gaelic League, we in the Gaelic League, both Catholics and Protestants, are aware of the goodwill that we share. This escalated then, of course, after Churchill's speech and on the 8th of October in 1913. But again, there was a major detailed article by um, CAOR, C-O-O-R, and Clive Sullish in October 1913 under the title Aragon Rinch, Ireland Without Part uh, Partition, making um, a, a huge case for why we should try to work together. This eventually led, of course, then to the article by Owen McNeill on the 1st of November, the North began. And we, we're all aware of this and that it, it is purported uh, to have been the basis for the foundation of the uh, Ulster Volunteers. So we, it's not coincidental that this was an Irish language, bilang bilingual, if you like, newspaper, but of the Gaelic League, so that there were links there all the time and that it was seen as um, 
a forum for debate and for intellectual thought. And then again, on the first page of, um, the, of the Clive Solish on the 29th of November, they, they stated on the first page, the Irish volunteers were founded in Dublin on Tuesday night. Owen McNeil was the first to advise this work in the Clive and he was in charge of the meeting on Tuesday. So they did have an influence on, on what was, um, on, on the thinking of the time and then, of course, Pierce's articles, The Coming Revolution. And on the 3rd of January 1914, we see a very, very clear, distinct uh, difference in the mindset that Pierce has taken in his article, The Psychology of a Volunteer. And before this, as we saw before that, he was it, it was very much a mindset of, um, yes, Irish language and Irish culture would be part of society. But here he makes the distinct link between um, Irish as a language and Irish as a format um, of uh, nationality. And this, of course, also this is linked probably to his visit uh, in the States. He, he, he apparently was quite influenced by what he found in the States. But again, that international link. I do not know who among the Gaelic leaguers that have joined the volunteers has been foolish enough to, to suggest that he cares for the language merely as a sort of stimulant in the fight for nationhood. Certainly not I, and he goes on and so forth. Um, uh, I, I leave you to read it because I'm conscious of time. This, however, as I said, differs from his early writings, new echoes of the United Irishmen of 1798, the Young Irelanders of 1840s, um, and the ghost that had to be appeased came to the fore. These were all in his pamphlets as well that he wrote um, just coming up to the 1916 Rising. And he wrote uh, in the separatist idea that Tone, Davis, Mitchell and Lawler were the fathers of the nation, classifying them um, as, as the fathers and others before them as the commentarists. So he was, he was quite, um, he really was following this nationalistic trend at this time. So the Irish Citizen Army, the Ulster Volunteers, the Irish Republican Brotherhood, which was behind the inauguration of the Irish Volunteers in 1913, were the political backdrop for 1912, 1913, and 1914. And then we had the rising. And this is the first page of the uh, Clive Sullish showing the city in ruins. And it's, um, it's, there were five issues put into one because, of course, a lot of the papers weren't published during that month. During this period also, the Irish reached, so this was the urban setup at this time, and it was really taking more of a military uh, uh, mindset. But all along, the intellectual life was being um, nurtured, and we can see that even in the 1916 uh, rising, and in, in memoirs, anything that we read, we can see that there was this intellectual mindset. Even in the GPO, uh, in Des Fitzgerald's memoirs, we see uh, how he, he was discussing with, with Pierce the moral rectitude of what they were doing, how, the, how Plunkett uh, was discussing poetry and different authors. With all of what was going on around them, they were still talking about this. So there, there, there was, uh, there was that, that basis which got convoluted, I think, in, in, in some of that uh, period, perhaps. But the regional Irish language press was also very evident, and these journals, while apparently insignificant, reveal a different light to the urban intellectual mindset, but provide a very valuable forum for regional pockets, especially in Irish-speaking districts. And just to take a quick look at these, well, now these are the first, just to look at, and Gael and Irish Lorna Gaelic, these are in the 1880s. So then, and we, we see how they're very ornate, trying to really, again, trying to bring the manuscripts into the print culture and that beautiful um, artistic uh, development. Again, some of, some of the, the images. Uh, and just to see that um, the continuity of speakers was more important than learners, and it has been a, a bond between the sea divided gale. So this is something, you know, we see again that the sea was not, this was an intellectual mindset, and language was one of the, the uh, unifying elements. Uh, again, and then Clive Sullish owned the one her, owned the one here from the Eastern world and the West world. This is in, in Belfast in 1913 and Cree of Rua. Uh, so we see again uh, the, these, these types of images where Ireland is to the fore and the Celtic uh, mindset coming. Um, but still, life goes on. Clonard, Mineral Water Company, New Drink, Tally Ho, and uh, so forth. So it wasn't just um, very uh, restricted to um, uh, intellectual discourse only. Then we have, uh, and I've just put in here 1907, but on Locron, of course, um, uh, was was one of the um, and and it, it it came to the fore again uh, of in in Munster there was really basically a Munster Ulster and Connacht 
uh, and we, we, there were the urban, uh, then Banaba, of course, and um, and Branner in Dublin as well at the time. But on Locrum, this is very, it's one of the most interesting little journals, if you like, but really shows a little community in a pocket in um, the southwest of Ireland uh, working away on language and culture and as a community. And the the the, uh, the contributions are very, very interesting in it. I'm just, just briefly showing you these. And Stock again, and this was, of course, uh, in the West. And this one, of course, um, in my own uh, uh, county. Uh, and Cran in Letterkenny. And this was in 1916. This was going on. While all of this was going on, there was a journal founded in Letterkenny in 1916. And more to the point, Fanny O'Doherty in Chicago uh, was, uh, wrote um, a lovely uh, piece then on uh, Loretto Convent uh, in Letterkenny. So all of this was still going on. And a print culture, I think, gave many people that, that, that escapism, if you like, where they could uh, communicate what they wanted to communicate in a way uh, which disengaged from the turmoil of a very um, a time of huge political and national unrest. So all of this going on, while you can think, you know, going on to the War of Independence, the Civil War, and so forth. And again, the, with regard to the English language press, the Irish Independent in 1905, and Donald O'Neill's column all the time, 1905 to 1915, uh, the Gaelic Leaguer, and they had they had um, promoted this. Also. Um, uh, this crossed the water to Britain. The intellectual life was linked through the literary societies such as the, the Southwark Literary Club. And it's through these clubs that many of the revivalists and indeed some of the volunteers met. The London Journal of the Gaelic League, Inish File, uh, Gohna Neil, which was 1904 to 1938, and Antheranach, 1910 to 1913, and then Irish and Anya, which was, which was founded just at the end of this period in 1919, who was Desmond Ryan's father, returned to London in 1911 as editor of the left-wing Daily Herald and is noted as one of the most progressive journalists in the context of the labour movement. And he, in turn, of course, influenced his son, uh, Desmond Ryan. So I think it's important that we, we, we remember that, really, from the mid-Victorian years on to the middle of the 20th century, the role of the journalist as an educator of the masses became widely accepted as Tumber and Prentola status. To finish, the creation of a modern literature then, which was the other side of this, led to many debates on font types, language register and standards, terminology, orthography. So this brings us back to what I started with. And these have been rigor rigorously documented already. The font issue and the spoken language were probably the most divisive and controversial, both of which were central to linguistic change and to an increase in literacy rates. Furthermore, the use of Gaelic or Roman script had significant impact in the latter part of the 1920s and was used in government policy for publishing school texts. As we draw to the end of the period in 1919, the Gaelic situation still had not improved despite all this effort, which was a source of concern for some prominent language activists and was expressed by Liam O'Ring, impacting on the overall intellectual life in the context of the West of Ireland. This is uh, in the Irish Independent in 1919. This was what Liam said. I'm afraid that we won't have a proper natural literature in Irish until the Gaelcott community wake up, not only with regard to the Irish language, but with regard to the whole world. This completely encompasses to me everything that happened before then. And this was where the gaps were. Uh, where people hadn't engaged perhaps with the wider world, that this needed to be done. They have a sort of lethargy, like someone who is trying to recover from illness, or is it that they are just kind of bewildered because the ancient Irish life they had has been cast aside without a new modern Irish life ready to put in its place. I would contend, actually, that that is not just related to the Gaeltacht areas, but re related perhaps to a lot of Ireland at the time. It probably best summarises the state of play which influenced the Gaeltacht mindset, however, at the stage of the revival. Basically, the structures of the revival worked for the urban bilingual community of revivalists, but Gaeltacht speakers still needed English to take their place in the modern world. And until that bilingual and in the print forum would be recognised, it was still going to be a challenge. They did not view their language as a reality in the English-speaking world, perhaps. The revivalist debates and campaigns continued to ensure that Irish language was rendered a visible part of the urban landscape. And of course, we have all the various um, 
issues that were uh, debated. I'll just quickly put them through. Higher education, as I said, the um, national university is probably one of the most important there. Secondly, and I'm running through these, but perhaps just to look at the Ridgework Litherha, uh, Padraig O'Connora, who uh, founded this, and um, it was to, um, to try and create uh, a forum for buying books and for reading, but actually didn't work. Come on the Scrivenery at the Earth in 1920, but it actually, it, it, it was quite successful, Come on the Scrivenery, and uh, I'll I just refer to that now at the end as well. The main political issues, as we said, home rule, the politics within and outside the Gaelic League, the Irish Pol Parliamentary Party, the volunteers, and of course, the election in 1918. When we put that all in context of what was parallel going on, there was a major mix of different mindsets being uh, put together and what was going to come out of that for our new state in 1922. And I would say the Irish language probably had a big part in that. Just looking at what was covered in the context of uh, international material uh, in the Irish language. Now, I'm not sure if we can take anything there to be um, correct in the context of Irish speakers. But however, it's nice to think that they were looking at this. Um, so the debates did not exert enough influence to make any real difference in language among the English-speaking public of the time, but their role in print media in ensuring the visibility of Irish language in an urban context was an important part of the ultimate successes of Irish language revival for both urban and, Irish and rural Irish speakers. In the context of the intellectual life of this period, perhaps the most successful campaign was that of Irish as an essential requirement for the national university in an intellectual context, which was debated successfully in Enclave Sullish under the editorship of Pierce, resulting in Irish becoming necessary for matriculation from 1913 onwards. Clearly, the intellectual planning and execution of these decisions remain significant in the broader context of language, community, and culture down to the pr present day. It could be said that, they, that these print forms provide the blueprint for the developments of intellectual life during the period. And of course, Sean O'Toole has often referred to the uh, cultural task, the like of which was probably never attempted before by democratic means, which was taken by the Gaelic revival. And perhaps that's a key element here in comparison to what was going on at the time parallel to the democratic movement, if you like. The increasing pressure on the link on the Gaelic League to be political involved meant that the foundation of the state was seen as a stepping stone to the final stage in complete Irish revi revival. This piece in 1921 is upbeat with regard to the number of Irish writers but also highlights the cracks that were beginning to surface due to the lack of coherence in the approach that was being taken, which apparently would be corrected by a state policy or at least state assistance. Post-1920, um, the, the reliance on state assistance became the crutch for which may well have signified the dearth in intellectual Irish language uh, de development, regular, regularizing it to an educational forum. Clearly, the writing processes were still developing. Um, and as we see, with the, 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 a dozen books were published from this time last year, and that was 1921. We think of what was going on at that time as well. And just to bear in mind as well that in the context of the print form, there was only one newspaper uh, founded between um, 1916 and 1919, whereas there were hundreds of newspapers founded in the decades prior to that. So this perhaps, this saying, I think, sums up the importance of the print form and writing processes and their influence on the intellectual life of 1910 to 1920. While language revival is assessed, therefore, in the terms of number of speakers, it is time for an advanced appraisal of the revival, which includes the writing processes where the intellectual gale was developed and which shaped, as Nolligo Gaira said earlier, much of the 20th century developments. With the build-up to commemoration events, it is often overlooked that life went on after the event. And it is probably the followers of 1916 who exerted the most influence in implementing the ideals of this democratic process of the revival and the maintenance of the intellectual mindset. And as O'Gaira said, yes, it was the League's vision that inspired many of the followers of the revolution. Not only did they describe and outline the kind of Ireland that should be formed in the context of scholarship and culture, they trained the new young generation of the 20th century on how to set it up. This was not founded on a revolutionary event alone, but on the many events and intellectual debate, which was created by organizations like the Gaelic League and writing processes and cultural debates and initiatives played a strong role in this. To some extent, as a result of this, Irish language has become a normal part of life and of intellectual life uh, in Ireland, and it still is today in both a national and international context. 
This is partly and mainly, I would say, the result of the rigorous writing processes which were cultivated during this, during this period by, uh, by leaders and intellectuals of the 20th century. Thank you.